Welcome to the Unknown Friends podcast. I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wayne Productions, and I'm so glad you've joined me today. From late July to the end of August, we are taking a short break from our usual weekly book reviews, and instead I'm reading aloud the complete novel Man Alive by G.K. Chesterton. If you haven't yet listened to my introduction to Man Alive and my brief analysis of the book's characters and themes, check out my most recent book review, episode 26 of season 2, from July 14th. Today's episode is an unabridged recording of the second half of Man Alive Chapter 7, but be aware that my narration occasionally deviates from the original text when I encounter profanity or offensive language. This happens rarely, but I am omitting just one or two words in this chapter since I'm not comfortable using that kind of language. That said, I hope you thoroughly enjoy the second half of this chapter of Man Alive. Man Alive by G.K. Chesterton Chapter 7 The Two Curates, or The Burglary Charge, Continued Wishing, as Mr. Moon has said, to shorten the proceedings as much as possible, began Inglewood, I will not read the first part of the letter sent to us. It is only fair to the prosecution to admit the account given by the second clergyman fully ratifies, as far as facts are concerned, that given by the first clergyman. We concede, then, the canon's story, so far as it goes. This must necessarily be valuable to the prosecutor and also convenient to the court. I begin Mr. Percy's letter, then, at the point when all three men were standing on the garden wall. As I watched Hawkins wavering on the wall, I made up my own mind not to waver. A cloud of wrath was on my brain, like the cloud of copper fog on the houses and gardens round. My decision was violent and simple, yet the thoughts that led up to it were so complicated and contradictory that I could not retrace them now. I knew Hawkins was a kind, innocent gentleman, and I would have given ten pounds for the pleasure of kicking him down the road. That God should allow good people to be as bestially stupid as that rose against me like a towering blasphemy. At Oxford, I fear, I had the artistic temperament rather badly, and artists love to be limited. I liked the church as a pretty pattern— Discipline was mere decoration. I delighted in mere divisions of time. I liked eating fish on Friday. But then I like fish, and the fast was made for men who like meat. Then I came to Hoxton and found men who had fasted for five hundred years. Men who had to gnaw fish because they could not get meat, and fish bones when they could not get fish. As too many British officers treat the army as a review, so I had treated the church militant as if it were the church pageant. Hoxton cures that. Then I realized that for eighteen hundred years, 
the church militant had not been a pageant, but a riot, and a suppressed riot. There, still living patiently in Hoxton, were the people to whom the tremendous promises had been made. In the face of that, I had to become a revolutionary if I was to continue to be religious. In Hoxton, one cannot be a conservative without being also an atheist and a pessimist. Nobody but the devil could want to conserve Hoxton. On the top of all this comes Hawkins. If he had cursed all the Hoxton men, excommunicated them, and told them they were going to hell, I should have rather admired him. If he had ordered them all to be burned in the marketplace, I should still have had that patience that all good Christians have with the wrongs inflicted on other people. But there is no priestcraft about Hawkins, nor any other kind of craft. He is as perfectly incapable of being a priest as he is of being a carpenter, or a cabman, or a gardener, or a plasterer. He is a perfect gentleman. That is his complaint. He does not impose his creed, but simply his class. He never said a word of religion in the whole of his address. He simply said all the things his brother the major would have said. A voice from heaven assures me that he has a brother, and that this brother is a major. When this helpless aristocrat had praised cleanliness in the body and convention in the soul to people who could hardly keep body and soul together, the stampede against our platform began. I took part in his undeserved rescue. I followed his obscure deliverer until, as I have said, we stood together on the wall above the dim gardens, already clouding with fog. Then I looked at the curate and at the burglar and decided, in a spasm of inspiration, that the burglar was the better man of the two. The burglar seemed quite as kind and human as the curate was, and he was also brave and self-reliant, which the curate was not. I knew there was no virtue in the upper class, for I belonged to it myself. I knew there was not so very much in the lower class, for I had lived with it a long time. Many old texts about the despised and persecuted came back to my mind, and I thought that the saints might well be hidden in the criminal class. About the time Hawkins let himself down the ladder, I was crawling up a low, sloping, blue-slate roof after the large man, who went leaping in front of me like a gorilla. This upward scramble was short, and we soon found ourselves tramping along a broad road of flat roofs, broader than many big thoroughfares, with chimney pots here and there that seemed in the haze as bulky as small forts. The asphyxiation of the fog seemed to increase the somewhat swollen and morbid anger under which my brain and body labored. The sky and all those things that are commonly clear seemed overpowered by sinister spirits. 
Tall specters with turbans of vapor seem to stand higher than the sun or moon, eclipsing both. I thought dimly of illustrations to the Arabian Nights on brown paper with rich but somber tints, showing genii gathering round the seal of Solomon. By the way, what was the seal of Solomon? Nothing to do with sealing wax, really, I suppose, but my muddled fancy felt the thick clouds as being of that heavy and clinging substance, of strong opaque color, poured out of boiling pots and stamped into monstrous emblems. The first effect of the tall, turbaned vapors was that discolored look of pea soup or coffee brown of which Londoners commonly speak. But the scene grew subtler with familiarity. We stood above the average of the housetops and saw something of that thing called smoke, which in great cities creates the strange thing called fog. Beneath us rose a forest of chimney-pots, and there stood in every chimney-pot, as if it were a flower-pot, a brief shrub or a tall tree of colored vapor. The colors of the smoke were various, for some chimneys were from firesides and some from factories, and some again from mere rubbish heaps. And yet, though the tints were all varied, they all seemed unnatural like fumes from a witch's pot. It was as if the shameful and ugly shapes growing shapeless in the cauldron sent up each its separate spurt of steam, colored according to the fish or flesh consumed. Here, aglow from underneath, were dark red clouds, such as might drift from dark jars of sacrificial blood. There, the vapor was dark indigo-gray, like the long hair of witches steeped in the hell-broth. In another place the smoke was of an awful, opaque, ivory yellow, such as might be the disembodiment of one of their old, leprous, waxen images. But right across it ran a line of bright, sinister, sulfurous green, as clear and crooked as Arabic... Mr. Moses Gould once more attempted the arrest of the bus... He was understood to suggest that the reader should shorten the proceedings by leaving out all the adjectives. Mrs. Duke, who had woken up, observed that she was sure it was all very nice, and the decision was duly noted down by Moses with a blue and by Michael with a red pencil. Inglewood then resumed the reading of the document. Then I read the writing of the smoke. Smoke was like the modern city that makes it. It is not always dull or ugly, but it is always wicked and vain. Modern England was like a cloud of smoke. It could carry all colors, but it could leave nothing but a stain. It was our weakness and not our strength that put a rich refuse in the sky. These were the rivers of our vanity pouring into the void. We had taken the sacred circle of the whirlwind and looked down on it and seen it as a whirlpool, and then we had used it as a sink. It was a good symbol of the mutiny in my own mind. Only our worst things were going to heaven. Only our criminals could still ascend like angels. 
As my brain was blinded with such emotions, my guide stopped by one of the big chimney pots that stood at the regular intervals like lampposts along that uplifted and aerial highway. He put his heavy hand upon it, and for the moment I thought he was merely leaning on it, tired with his steep scramble along the terrace. So far as I could guess from the abysses, full of fog on either side, and the veiled lights of red-brown and old gold glowing through them now and again, we were on the top of one of those long, consecutive, and genteel rows of houses which are still to be found lifting their heads above poorer districts, the remains of some rage of optimism in earlier speculative builders. Probably enough, they were entirely untenanted, or tenanted only by such small clans of the poor as gather also in the old, emptied palaces of Italy. Indeed, some little time later, when the fog had lifted a little, I discovered that we were walking round a semicircle of crescent, which fell away below us into one flat square or wide street below another, like a giant stairway in a manner not unknown in the eccentric building of London, and looking like the last ledges of the land. But a cloud sealed the giant stairway as yet. My speculations about the sullen skyscape, however, were interrupted by something as unexpected as the moon falling from the sky. Instead of my burglar lifting his hand from the chimney he leaned on, he leaned on it a little more heavily, and the whole chimney-pot turned over like the opening top of an inkstand. I remembered the short ladder leaning against the low wall, and felt sure he had arranged his criminal approach long before. The collapse of the big chimney-pot ought to have been the culmination of my chaotic feelings, but to tell the truth, it produced a sudden sense of comedy, and even of comfort. I could not recall what connected this abrupt bit of housebreaking with some quaint but still kindly fancies. Then I remembered the delightful and uproarious scenes of roofs and chimneys in the harlequinades of my childhood, and was darkly and quite irrationally comforted by a sense of unsubstantiality in the scene, as if the houses were of lath and paint and pasteboard, and were only meant to be tumbled in and out of by policemen and pantaloons. The law-breaking of my companion seemed not only seriously excusable, but even comically excusable. Who were all these pompous, preposterous people with their footmen and their foot-scrapers, their chimney-pots and their chimney-pot hats, that they should prevent a poor clown from getting sausages if he wanted them? One would suppose that property was a serious thing. I had reached, as it were, a higher level of that mountainous and vaporous vision, the heaven of a higher levity. My guide had jumped down into the dark cavity revealed by the displaced chimney-pot. He must have landed at a level considerably lower, for, tall as he was, nothing but his weirdly tousled head remained visible. Something again far off, and yet familiar, pleased me about this way of invading the houses of men. I thought of little chimney sweeps, and the water babies, but I decided that it was not that. 
Then I remembered what it was that made me connect such topsy-turvy trespass with ideas quite opposite to the idea of crime. Christmas Eve, of course, and Santa Claus coming down the chimney. Almost at the same instant, the hairy head disappeared into the black hole, but I heard a voice calling to me from below. A second or two afterwards, the hairy head reappeared. It was dark against the more fiery part of the fog, and nothing could be spelt of its expression. But its voice called on me to follow with that enthusiastic impatience proper only among old friends. I jumped into the gulf, and as blindly as courteous, for I was still thinking of Santa Claus and the traditional virtue of such vertical entrance. In every well-appointed gentleman's house, I reflected, there was the front door for the gentleman, and the side door for the tradesman, but there was also the top door for the gods. The chimney is, so to speak, the underground passage between earth and heaven. By this starry tunnel, Santa Claus manages, like the skylark, to be true to the kindred points of heaven and home. Nay, owing to certain conventions, and a widely distributed lack of courage for climbing, this door was perhaps little used. But Santa Claus's door was really the front door. It was the door fronting the universe. I thought this as I groped my way across the black garret, or loft, below the roof, and scrambled down the squat ladder that led us down into a yet larger loft below. Yet it was not till I was halfway down the ladder that I suddenly stood still, and thought for an instant of retracing all my steps, as my companion had retraced them from the beginning of the garden wall. The name of Santa Claus had suddenly brought me back to my senses. I remembered why Santa Claus came, and why he was welcome. I was brought up in the propertied classes, and with all their horror of offenses against property. I had heard all the regular denunciations of robbery, both right and wrong. I had read the Ten Commandments in church a thousand times. And then and there, at the age of thirty-four, halfway down a ladder in a dark room in the bodily act of burglary, I saw suddenly for the first time that theft, after all, is really wrong. It was too late to turn back, however, and I followed the strangely soft footsteps of my huge companion across the lower and larger loft till he knelt down on a part of the bare flooring and, after a few fumbling efforts, lifted a sort of trapdoor. This released a light from below, and we found ourselves looking down into a lamp-lit sitting room, of the sort that in large houses often leads out of a bedroom and is adjunct to it. Light, thus breaking from beneath our feet, like a soundless explosion, showed that the trapdoor just lifted was clogged with dust and rust, and had doubtless been long disused until the advent of my enterprising friend. But I did not look at this long, for the sight of the shining room underneath us had an almost unnatural attractiveness. To enter a modern interior at so strange an angle, by so forgotten a door, was an epoch in one's psychology. It was like having found a fourth dimension. 
My companion dropped from the aperture into the room, so suddenly and soundlessly that I could do nothing but follow him, though for lack of practice in crime, I was by no means soundless. Before the echo of my boots had died away, the big burglar had gone quickly to the door, half opened it, and stood looking down the staircase and listening. Then, leaving the door still half open, he came back into the middle of the room and ran his roving blue eye round its furniture and ornament. The room was comfortably lined with books in that rich and human way that makes the walls seem alive. It was a deep and full but slovenly bookcase, of the sort that is constantly ransacked for the purposes of reading in bed. One of those stunted German stoves that look like red goblins stood in a corner, and a sideboard of walnut wood with closed doors in its lower part. There were three windows, high but narrow. After another glance round, my housebreaker plucked the walnut doors open and rummaged inside. He found nothing there, apparently, except an extremely handsome cut-glass decanter containing what looked like port. Somehow the sight of the thief returning with this ridiculous little luxury in his hand woke within me once more all the revelation and revulsion I had felt above. "'Don't do it!' I cried quite incoherently. "'Santa Claus!' "'Ah,' said the burglar, as he put the decanter on the table and stood looking at me, "'you've thought about that, too.' "'I can't express a millionth part of what I've thought of,' I cried. "'But it's something like this. Oh, can't you see it? Why are children not afraid of Santa Claus, though he comes like a thief in the night? He is permitted secrecy, trespass, almost treachery.' because there are more toys where he has been. What should we feel if there were less? Down what chimney from hell would come the goblin that should take away the children's balls and dolls while they slept? Could a Greek tragedy be more gray and cruel than that daybreak and awakening? Dog-stealer, horse-stealer, man-stealer, can you think of anything so base as a toy-stealer? The burglar, as if absently, took a large revolver from his pocket and laid it on the table beside the decanter, but still kept his blue, reflective eyes fixed on my face. Man, I said, all stealing is toy stealing. That's why it's really wrong. The goods of the unhappy children of men should be really respected because of their worthlessness. I know Naboth's vineyard is as painted as Noah's ark. I know Nathan's ewe lamb is really a woolly ball lamb on a wooden stand. That is why I could not take them away. I did not mind so much as long as I thought of men's things as their valuables, but I dare not put a hand upon their vanities. After a moment I added abruptly, Only saints and sages ought to be robbed. They may be stripped and pillaged, but not the poor little worldly people of the things that are their poor little pride. He set out two wine glasses from the cupboard, filled them both, and lifted one of them with a salutation towards his lips. Don't do it, I cried. It might be the last bottle of some rotten vintage or other. The master of this house may be quite proud of it. 
Don't you see there's something sacred in the silliness of such things? It's not the last bottle, answered my criminal calmly. There's plenty more in the cellar. You know the house, then? I said. Too well, he answered, with a sadness so strange as to have something eerie about it. I am always trying to forget what I know, and to find what I don't know. He drained his glass. Besides, he added, it will do him good. What will do him good? The wine I'm drinking, said this strange person. Does he drink too much, then? I inquired. No, he answered, not unless I do. Do you mean, I demanded, that the owner of this house approves of all you do? God forbid, he answered, but he has to do the same. The dead face of the fog looking in at all three windows unreasonably increased a sense of riddle and even terror about this tall, narrow house we had entered out of the sky. I had once more the notion about the gigantic genii. I fancied that enormous Egyptian faces of the dead reds and yellows of Egypt were staring in at each window of our little lamplit room as at a lighted stage of marionettes. My companion went on playing with the pistol in front of him and talking with the same rather creepy confidentialness. I am always trying to find him, to catch him unawares. I come in through skylights and trap doors to find him, but whenever I find him, he is doing what I am doing. I sprang to my feet with a thrill of fear. There is someone coming, I cried, and my cry had something of a shriek in it. Not from the stairs below, but along the passage from the inner bedchamber, which seemed somehow to make it more alarming, footsteps were coming nearer. I am quite unable to say what mystery or monster or double I expected to see when the door was pushed open from within. I am only quite certain that I did not expect to see what I did see. Framed in the open doorway stood, with an air of great serenity, a rather tall young woman, definitely, though indefinably, artistic, her dress the color of spring and her hair of autumn leaves, with a face which, though still comparatively young, conveyed experience as well as intelligence. All she said was, I didn't hear you come in. I came in another way, said the permeator, somewhat vaguely. I'd left my latchkey at home. I got to my feet in a mixture of politeness and mania. I'm really very sorry, I cried. I know my position is irregular. Would you be so obliging as to tell me whose house this is? Mine said the burglar. May I present you to my wife? I doubtfully and somewhat slowly resumed my seat, and I did not get out of it till nearly morning. Mrs. Smith, such was the prosaic name of this far-from-prosaic household, lingered a little, talking slightly and pleasantly. She left on my mind the impression of a certain odd mixture of shyness and sharpness, 
as if she knew the world well, but was still a little harmlessly afraid of it. Perhaps the possession of so jumpy and incalculable a husband had left her a little nervous. Anyhow, when she had retired to the inner chamber once more, that extraordinary man poured forth his apologia and autobiography over the dwindling wine. He had been sent to Cambridge with a view to a mathematical and scientific, rather than a classical or literary, career. A starless nihilism was then the philosophy of the schools, and it bred in him a war between the members and the spirit, but one in which the members were right. While his brain accepted the black creed, his very body rebelled against it. As he put it, his right hand taught him terrible things. As the authorities of Cambridge University put it, unfortunately, it had taken the form of his right hand flourishing a loaded firearm in the very face of a distinguished dawn, and driving him to climb out of the window and cling to a water spout. He had done it solely because the poor Don had professed, in theory, a preference for non-existence. For this very unacademic type of argument, he had been sent down. Vomiting as he was with revulsion from the pessimism that had quailed under his pistol, he made himself a kind of fanatic of the joy of life. He cut across all the associations of serious-minded men. He was gay, but by no means careless. His practical jokes were more in earnest than verbal ones. Though not an optimist, in the absurd sense of maintaining that life is all beer and skittles, he did really seem to maintain that beer and skittles are the most serious part of it. What is more immortal, he would cry, than love and war? Type of all desire and joy, beer. Type of all battle and conquest, Skittles. There was something in him of what the old world called the solemnity of revels, when they spoke of solemnizing a mere masquerade or wedding banquet. Nevertheless, he was not a mere pagan, any more than he was a mere practical joker. His eccentricities sprang from a static fact of faith, in itself mystical and even childlike and Christian. I don't deny, he said, that there should be priests to remind men that they will one day die. I only say that at certain strange epochs it is necessary to have another kind of priests, called poets, actually to remind men that they are not dead yet. The intellectuals among whom I moved were not even alive enough to fear death. They hadn't enough blood in them to be cowards. Until a pistol barrel was poked under their very noses, they never even knew they had been born. For ages looking up an eternal perspective, it might be true that life is a learning to die. But for these little white rats, it was just as true that death was their only chance of learning to live. His creed of wonder was Christian by this absolute test, that he felt it continually slipping from himself as much as from others. He had the same pistol for himself, as Brutus said of the dagger. He continually ran preposterous risks of high precipice or headlong speed 
to keep alive the mere conviction that he was alive. He treasured up trivial and yet insane details that had once reminded him of the awful subconscious reality. When the dawn had hung on the stone gutter, the sight of his long dangling legs, vibrating in the void like wings, somehow awoke the naked satire of the old definition of man as a two-legged animal without feathers. The wretched professor had been brought into peril by his head, which he had so elaborately cultivated, and only saved by his legs, which he had treated with coldness and neglect. Smith could think of no other way of announcing or recording this except to send a telegram to an old friend, by this time a total stranger, to say that he had just seen a man with two legs, and that the man was alive. The uprush of his released optimism burst into stars like a rocket when he suddenly fell in love. He happened to be shooting a high and very headlong weir in a canoe, by way of proving to himself that he was alive, and he soon found himself involved in some doubt about the continuance of the fact. What was worse, he found he had equally jeopardized a harmless lady alone in a rowing boat, and one who had provoked death by no professions of philosophic negation. He apologized in wild gasps through all his wild, wet labors to bring her to the shore, and when he had done so at last, he seems to have proposed to her on the bank. Anyhow, with the same impetuosity with which he had nearly murdered her, he completely married her, and she was the lady in green to whom I had recently said good night. They had settled down in these high, narrow houses near Highbury. Perhaps, indeed, that is hardly the word. One could strictly say that Smith was married, that he was very happily married, that he not only did not care for any woman but his wife, but did not seem to care for any place but his home. But perhaps one could hardly say that he had settled down. I am a very domestic fellow, he explained with gravity, and have often come in through a broken window rather than be late for tea. He lashed his soul with laughter to prevent it falling asleep. He lost his wife a series of excellent servants by knocking at the door as a total stranger and asking if Mr. Smith lived there and what kind of a man he was. The London general servant is not used to the master indulging in such transcendental ironies, and it was found impossible to explain to her that he did it in order to feel the same interest in his own affairs that he always felt in other people's. I know there's a fellow called Smith, he said in his rather weird way, living in one of the tall houses in this terrace. I know he is really happy, and yet I can never catch him at it. Sometimes he would, of a sudden, treat his wife with a kind of paralyzed politeness, like a young stranger struck with love at first sight. Sometimes he would extend this poetic fear to the very furniture, would seem to apologize to the chair he sat on, and climb the staircase as cautiously as a cragsman, to renew in himself the sense of their skeleton of reality. Every stair is a ladder, and every stool a leg, he said. 
and at other times he would play the stranger exactly in the opposite sense, and would enter by another way, so as to feel like a thief and a robber. He would break and violate his own home, as he had done with me that night. It was near morning before I could tear myself from this queer confidence of the man who would not die, and as I shook hands with him on the doorstep, the last load of fog was lifting, and rifts of daylight revealed the stairway of irregular street levels that looked like the end of the world. It will be enough for many to say that I had passed a night with a maniac. What other term, it will be said, could be applied to such a being? A man who reminds himself that he is married by pretending not to be married. A man who tries to covet his own goods instead of his neighbor's. On this, I have but one word to say, and I feel it of my honor to say it, though no one understands. I believe the maniac was one of those who do not merely come, but are sent. Sent like a great gale upon ships by him who made his angels winds and his messengers a flaming fire. This, at least, I know for certain. Whether such men have laughed or wept, we have laughed at their laughter as much as at their weeping. Whether they cursed or blessed the world, they have never fitted it. It is true that men have shrunk from the sting of a great satirist, as if from the sting of an adder. But it is equally true that men flee from the embrace of a great optimist, as from the embrace of a bear. Nothing brings down more curses than a real benediction. For the goodness of good things, like the badness of bad things, is a prodigy past speech. It is to be pictured rather than spoken. We shall have gone deeper than the deeps of heaven, and grown older than the oldest angels, before we feel, even in its first faint vibrations, the everlasting violence of that double passion with which God hates and loves the world. I am, yours faithfully, Raymond Percy. Ho, oly, 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 said Mr. Moses Gould. The instant he had spoken, all the rest knew they had been in an almost religious state of submission and assent. Something had bound them together, something in the sacred tradition of the last two words of the letter, something also in the touching and boyish embarrassment with which Inglewood had read them for he had all the thin-skinned reverence of the agnostic. Moses Gould was as good a fellow in his way as ever lived, far kinder to his family than more refined men of pleasure, simple and steadfast in his admiration, a thoroughly wholesome animal and a thoroughly genuine character. But wherever there is conflict, crises come in which any soul, personal or racial, unconsciously turns on the world the most hateful of its hundred faces. English reverence, Irish mysticism, American idealism looked up and saw on the face of Moses a certain smile. It was that smile of the cynic triumphant, which has been the toxin for many a cruel riot in Russian villages or medieval towns. How oly, 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 said Moses Gould, 
Finding that this was not well-received, he explained further, exuberance deepening on his dark, exuberant features. "'Always fun to see a bloke swallow a wasp when he's corfin' up a fly,' he said pleasantly. "'Don't you see, you've bunged up old Smith anyhow. If this parson's tale's okay, why, Smith is ought. He's pretty ought. We find him elopin' with Miss Gray, best respects, in a cab. Well, what about this Mrs. Smith the curate talks of, with her blasted shyness, transmogrified into a blighted sharpness? Miss Gray ain't been very sharp.' but I reckon she'll be pretty shy. Don't be a brute, growled Michael Moon. None could lift their eyes to look at Mary, but Inglewood sent a glance along the table at Innocent Smith. He was still bowed above his paper toys, and a wrinkle was on his forehead that might have been worry or shame. He carefully plucked out one corner of a complicated paper and tucked it in elsewhere. Then the wrinkle vanished, and he looked relieved. That concludes today's chapter reading. As always, I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wayne Productions, and you can learn more about me, my podcast, and my writing by visiting my website, kittywayneproductions.com. Thanks for listening, and tune in again next Wednesday, August 25th, for chapter 8.